We are parents, we are doctors, we are first responders, teachers, and concerned citizens who have found ourselves at a crossroads. We see our freedoms being stripped away and we can no longer stay silent. We are millions strong, united in a thundering voice and imperative mission that cannot and will not be ignored. We are standing up for the basic human right to raise our own children, earn a living, and make our own medical decisions without the tyrannical overreach that has been forced upon us here in California, across the country, and around the world. We are here to amplify the voices, moving the needle, bringing forth truth, and provide education and resources with tangible tools and expert insights. We are The Unity Project, and this is our podcast. I am so thrilled to have an incredible young person with us today. Uh, This individual is a true champion, not only for the country, but also for her demographic. And I've had the opportunity to uh, speak with this this individual over the past few months and look at the work that, that she's doing. And it truly has impacted the country and I think helped move the needle forward in terms of changing the trajectory of what's happening uh, with the state of California and with some of these bills. And uh, we have the leader of Teens Against the Mandates in studio today. And we're also joined by uh, Dr. Aaron Cariotti, who I feel like you never need an introduction. I mean, I feel like... Well, that's right. It's, that's all right. You don't need to <laughs> say anything more about me. Uh, folks will get to know me in the course of the conversation. So. All right. Yeah. Well, thank you both for um, giving me the opportunity to speak with you and meet with you today. Um, I run Teens Against Mandates, which is like... Um, a teen medical freedom page that I started back in October after I had experienced a few um, personal things which made me feel like very very pressured into getting the vaccine Um, so yeah I compiled um, a list of questions that I think are relevant to teens so Great. I'm ready when you guys are. Absolutely. You know, okay. you can ask away, and, and, and we'd love to ask you some questions as well. I know you referenced just now that you experienced things that you felt like you were pressured yeah. to, to get yeah. the vaccine. And so um, hopefully in, this, in the next hour, we can explore what that is, too, because I think that's really, really important mm-hmm. for people to hear. Yeah. Um, okay, well, um, I just wanted to start with the, the California Senate Bill 866, the yes. minor consent bill. Mm-hmm. Um, which is like an attempt to allow minors to consent to their own medical decisions. I know you're both against the bill, but if it does get passed, how do you think parents can continue to um, protect their children? So that's, that's a great question. And hopefully the bill will not get passed because asking a minor to consent to a medical intervention that has, first of all, has potential lifelong consequences that we know we know whatever benefits you get from the COVID vaccines are time limited at best. They're very short lived, a matter of months, but the harms can last potentially much longer. And we've seen serious vaccine injuries that have been well documented, uh, many of them well characterized, many of them that require a lot more research. Uh, but we know that some of the vaccine injuries are permanent uh, and some of them are going to cause chronic problems. Uh, But one of the problems with this whole notion of informed consent around these vaccines is that that information is being systematically suppressed and not given not only to minors when they are uh, asked or in some cases pressured to get a vaccine, but also not necessarily even given to parents. So I would say, first of all, parents realize that uh, this, this state 
by a bill like this is trampling on your parental rights. Mm -hmm. So you need to continue pushing back and insisting on those rights to make medical decisions on behalf of your children. Uh, but also realize that uh, while that fight is continuing, it's important to remember that you're still the primary educator of your children, right? The schools are there to help you, but you are the person in your child's life that hopefully has the most influence over them. And even teens who often rebel and push back and you know, they're, they're individuating and developing their own identity. They do want to hear what you have to say, particularly regarding a decision like this. So they may be experiencing peer pressure or social pressure or a desire to sort of fit in at school or just go with the flow so that I, I, I don't make waves, so that I'm not stigmatized. Uh, teaching them the importance of moral courage, of standing up for your own convic convictions and trying to set an example for that. Um, and also giving them some information so that they can educate themselves on the potential harms and the potential side effects of these vaccines. The Unity Project website and other resources out there can provide good uh, scientific evidence-based information on those issues. I think, I think most children and most teenagers obviously do care about their own health. Um, you know, they, they may not think about the future in the same way that their parents do, um, but it, their children are not entirely <laughs> reckless. They do have common sense. And if I think if a child or particularly a, a teenager who's more mature understands that this is not a trivial intervention, um, that this is just not a one-off shot that, you know, I, I might have a headache or a mild fever for a day or two and then it's over with, that the potential consequences or harms from this could be uh, much more severe in certain cases, then most kids are probably going to, to make good medical decisions based on that information. And I'll, I'll, just, I'll just tell one story that uh, I mentioned this to my dad recently, the last time I, I saw him, the last time I was visiting, and he didn't remember ever having said this, but when I was 15 years old, I was prone to doing kind of dangerous and um, impulsive things, like many 15-year-old boys. And uh, you know, I didn't get into drugs and alcohol and that sort of thing, but I often did sort of dangerous water sports and uh, you know, uh, kind of thrill-seeking type activities. And so my dad had, found, had, had learned that I had gone with some friends cliff jumping off these very high cliffs in, into the water. Um, and, uh, and I remember what he, what he said to me. I remember the exact spot where we were driving in the car. He said, basically, son, courage does not mean doing dangerous or reckless things. Courage means doing the right thing even when it's unpopular. And that was many, many decades ago. Right. <laughs> and I still remember word for word what he said. For whatever reason, that stuck with me. And I think that formed and shaped my own understanding of what it means to do the right thing and to have courage and to have a moral compass. So just a word to, to your parents. It may not look like your teenage children are listening to you, or they may be pushing back, or they may be just spouting information that they get from sources that they're following on TikTok or whatever. Um, but you probably still have more influence over your children than you sometimes think. And you know, remember that that you know you have you have the authority certainly to educate and to guide them 
uh, in regards to their health. And that is going to be much more powerful at the end of the day than anything that the state ends up doing. Yeah, and I would add, fortunately, in this particular case, I actually uh, did a live yesterday on Twitter with uh, Freedom Angels, who's one of our strategic partners. And they it's looking like we may actually have made some impact. I say we. Um, the people that, that are awake and, and are aware of what's happening and the dangers of bills like this. So hopefully we won't get to that point. Um, because if we do, it will be a very, very sad day for this country. I mean, we'll, we'll be living in an environment where the first for the first time really in the history of this country, do we see uh, the government intervening in the parent-child relationship. And I cannot express how I think terrifying and dangerous that is. Um, and to your point, I think parents will need to really make sure that they're, they're very ever-present in their child's life. In addition to that, you know, people ask me all the time, what, do we, what, what can we do? And um, you, every parent does have a mechanism at their disposal for school-age children. And frankly, um, it's a simple one, but they can choose to pull their kids out of school in protest and opposition to something like this. And that's something that parents should really put some serious thought into. Um, do they want their children to continue to be in an environment where you are you no longer have control over the health and safety really of your child because make no mistake about it these vaccines um, do not come without potential ramifications especially in the pediatric population I, I would like to ask you what are your thoughts on on this I mean um, from your age group uh, well like you both mentioned mm -hmm. kids don't have like the executive functioning to make um, to understand the long-term consequences for their medical decisions. Yeah. And I, I actually heard a crazy story about um, a student, um, elementary or middle school, mm -hmm. who was bribed with pizza yeah. to get, um, to take the vaccine, um, which is not legal. Right. And um, I have a similar personal experience. About a year ago, it was my checkup with my doctor. Mm -hmm. And she had asked my mom to leave the room mm -hmm. and, um, tried to convince me to take the vaccine mm -hmm. behind her back. Um, let's just say I don't go to her anymore, yeah. but yeah. It, it's outrageous, it's right? Outrageous, yeah, yeah uh, I had a similar experience. My, I took my child to the doctor and they also asked me to leave the room, to which I said, absolutely not. And uh, you can go get the chief of staff <laughs> if uh, we disagree on yeah. this anymore, because that will not be happening. I am the parent and I have the ultimate sacred obligation, because I believe it's a sacred obligation that parents have to protect their children and to have um, an overall understanding of their health and well-being. So yeah. yeah, I'm sorry that you went through that. That's Thank terrifying. You. Medical informed consent can never involve manipulation. The doctor may have a judgment or opinion about what, what the doctor thinks you ought to do. Um, and you know, a little bit of nudging or persuasion or gee, have you considered this? is okay, but that can very easily shade into outright manipulation. So isolating a minor from her parent um, and then doing a really sort of hard salesmanship type sell for any medical intervention is, is wrong. It's unethical. Informed consent means I give the patient the relevant information, the risks, the potential benefits, and the alternatives, including not taking something or not intervening. And then I allow the patient to make a decision based on 
that information. And again, I can give a recommendation. I can say, you know, in my opinion, I think you ought to do this or I think you ought not to do that. But ultimately the patient is the decision maker and the doctor is in a position of power and authority. The patient is vulnerable because they don't have the medical knowledge or maybe because they're sick and they need to get help from the doctor. Um, and so that, that power imbalance means that the physician has to be very delicate about how they approach that conversation. So what you're describing is a clear breach of medical ethics, absolutely. And, and, uh, and it, it was also illegal in the state of California to boot, given that this law has not yet passed. But even if this law passes and uh, it's considered quote unquote legal in California, for a doctor to try to get informed consent from a minor for this particular vaccine, it's still unethical, in my judgment, well, for the doctor to do that. And it's impossible. I, I know we talk a lot about informed consent, right? Yeah. It's impossible to get informed consent um, anywhere in this country for the COVID-19 vaccine because nobody knows what's contained in these vaccines. So therefore, no one is informed. There is no such thing as informed consent as it relates to these particular vaccines. That's right. There's been no no transparency. I am some physician and scientist colleagues had to sue the FDA to get the clinical trials data on the Pfizer vaccine. They're only releasing it very slowly over the course of nine months. Uh, the FDA wanted to take 75 years to release it. Yeah. The judge said, no, you have nine months. But even then, we're still waiting to get all of the information that was already submitted to the FDA about the clinical trials for this vaccine. So the information is just not being made available, you can't have informed consent without information. That's the, that's the whole premise of the entire right. process. So what would your advice be to the people who are fighting against censorship, like um, Bill AB 2098, yeah. um, the, the bill which doesn't allow physicians to engage in the spread of misinformation of COVID um, and threatens to take away their medical license, um, also disrupting the trust between a patient the patient-doctor relationship, um, that means that all, all the truthful, um, honest doctors are essentially forbidden from recommending against the vaccine if that's what they see as best fit for yeah. their patient. Um, wouldn't this be a violation of the Hippocratic Oath to not um, cause harm? No, thank you for bringing this up. Great and question. your question and your characterization of the, uh, the problems with this bill is spot on it's it's right on target that's exactly what is wrong with this bill that's currently in the california uh, state senate and uh, i worry that it might be passed i actually went and testified at a committee hearing against this bill and what i said in a nutshell was how can anyone trust a physician who has a gag order in other words how can you trust a physician that cannot say what he or she actually thinks about a medical intervention uh, that, that you might ask about or that they are recommending. If a physician is merely parroting what the state is telling them to say, they're not acting as a physician. And you might agree or disagree with your physician's recommendation, right? That's okay, right? As long as the physician respects your decision and, you know, uh, th that can work out. It happens all the time. Doctors, you know, I recommend things to patients all the time that they say, no, I'll consider it, but I think not not right now. Okay, no problem. So that that's not an issue. The, the issue is the patient has to know that whatever I'm saying, whether they happen to agree with it and consent to it or whether they decline it, that I am 
giving a recommendation that I truly believe in, mm -hmm. right? If they think I'm just saying what I have to say under compulsion, there's no way that they could trust me, as, right. as, you, as you pointed out. So this will destroy the trust in the doctor-patient relationship. What I'm, what I'm gonna advise physicians to do, if a patient asks a physician about the COVID vaccine, the physician under this law will have to say, and this is what I would say, uh, the state requires me to say this about the vaccine. The state does not permit me to say what I think about that vaccine. That's all I can tell you. And that sends a clear message to the patient that there is a problem here um, and that my doctor is being constrained by a state law in a way that's making it impossible for this relationship to work. And maybe that will activate some more people to, you know, ask questions. Hey, what's going on here? Why can't my doctor tell me what he actually thinks about the COVID vaccine? He told me what he thought about these six other questions that I had for him today about, you know, my other medical issues. He was, he was honest and forthright. But on this, he made it clear uh, that he couldn't speak freely. What's going on? And I think if enough pa patients have that kind of experience, then... <laughs> And, and, you know, inquire, uh, then we're going to get a lot of pushback on a law like this. I think a law like this is not going to stand very long. It's either going to be struck down by the courts because it's a clear violation of freedom of speech, of the First Amendment constitutional right of physicians, um, but it's also going to create all kinds of problems in the doctor-patient relationship. And hopefully not only doctors, but patients will start pushing back when they realize, hey, this is not good for medicine. Well, and I think you brought up a really interesting point by asking about the Hippocratic Oath. And, and we all know, right, the Hippocratic Oath is first do no harm. And if you have a doctor that kn knows, obviously, the patient's history and they mm -hmm. believe that um, the vaccine could represent some type of adverse reaction based on their medical history and they're not free to um, advise against it, then that is clearly, in my, my opinion, and I'd love to hear your opinion as well, but that's a clear violation of the Hippocratic Oath because they're, they're not um, doing the first rule, which is first do no harm. That's right. So. That's right. Yeah, this, this kind of ham, handcuffs physicians mm -hmm. and prevents them from practicing good medicine. Um, so clearly a lot of people have um, lost trust in the medical system. Yeah. Do you foresee them regaining that trust eventually? And how could we help restore it? So this is a really, really important question. Thank you for asking it. Um, as anyone who has been in a relationship where trust was broken knows, trust is pretty easy to lose. And it's really hard to regain. So we squandered a lot of trust in the last three years with our entire response to the pandemic and our entire medical and public health establishment that blundered its way through lots and lots of mistakes and harmful policies. There was, I think prior to the pandemic, there was a, a good degree of general trust in medicine. Not, not as strong as it was 30 years ago, but still quite strong. Most people have, have had a positive view of the medical profession as a whole. Most people had a generally positive view of most physicians. That's not the case now. Um, and it, you know, it's not just among people who are sort of more on the fringe or have already rejected Western medicine for other reasons. It's, you know, I'm talking to lawyers, CEOs, high level, highly educated professionals, academics with PhDs, 
who, who tell me, like three years ago, I never thought I would say anything like this, but I never want to go to a hospital again. I never want to go see another physician again. Their, their trust in medicine has been absolutely shattered, and I understand why. I think that will take probably a generation or two to regain, and it's not going to happen automatically. It will only happen if there are major reforms in our medical and public health institutions. And I don't know yet whether those institutions are prepared to make those reforms. I mean, that's work that I'm going to devote myself to in the coming years. But I'm not sure how much headway we're going to make. Certainly, if this lack of trust is communicated to doctors and medical institutions by people who are feeling this way now, that's going to be the most important thing to help that along. So these, these institutions will be responsive to patients even more than they will be responsive to their own employees or physicians or nurses. So I think it would require the kind of work that you're doing, right, to educate people on um, what has happened during the pandemic. And particularly, you're, you're working with young people to raise awareness of some of these issues. If young people, you know, start sending an email or you know, writing a letter to their former physician saying, this is why I don't trust the medical establishment anymore, those, those actually will have, I think, a much more profound impact than most people realize. The, the power is really now in the hands of the patients. It's not so much in the hands of physicians, but you know, that requires a collective effort. You know, one letter from one patient is not gonna change an institute, a hospital or a medical clinic. Um, but dozens of letters from patients that used to come here right, and no longer do, that's gonna have an impact. That's gonna, you know, people are gonna, are gonna say, okay, what do we need to do to regain their trust? I, I agree and I think um, what you said as well, the work that you're doing with Teens Against the Mandates and helping in particular, the, the younger demographic understand and, and giving them pathways to gain information. But also, I think the work that you're doing, Dr. Cariotti, in terms of um, helping to lend um, ideas of how to reform and, uh, at the highest levels, right? When I think the American population starts to see change at organizations like the NIH and the CDC, even though, interestingly enough, I mean, the CDC is, oftentimes they're not even medical doctors, right, as we've discussed, but organizations like that are, in, at least in the minds of the American public, are synonymous with the overall healthcare system. So I think when we start seeing some, some hopefully, house cleaning going on yeah. in, those, in those institutions, that would also potentially help. And that, I mean, that's where, that's where voting is, remains important and political action remains important because again most ordinary Americans okay what can I do to reform right. the CDC maybe Dr. Cariotti and some of his colleagues have some ideas but you know what do I do well you know the reform of our what I call our three-letter agencies the, the Department of Health and Human Services has the CDC which makes recommendations mm -hmm. the FDA which approves medications and vaccines and the NIH, which funds medical research. These agencies need to be reformed, but that has to be on the radar screen of our representatives in Congress. 
Um, that has to be on the radar screen in terms of presidential politics and platforms. People need to make it known that our pandemic response harmed me in this way. And my voting behavior is gonna depend, at least in part, on what are you going to do about reforming those agencies that blundered mm -hmm. our public health response um, or that were compromised or corrupted by um, conflicts of interest like pharmaceutical funding. What are, you, what are you going to do about that? Again, our politicians are responsive to their con constituents. And if they think this is going to influence voting behavior of people who are voting for or against me, they will, they will act. Yeah. Um, so again, it's, it's, a, it's the age-old political problem of, of collective action. Again, one, one person is not going to convince their senator uh, or, you know, or member of Congress to do something about a problem. Uh, but a group of concerned citizens mm -hmm. who, are, uh, who are activated mm -hmm. and who are energetic and who work hard at this, they can have a meaningful impact. That's why the kind of, the kind of on the ground work that groups like Teens Against the Mandate and right. Unity Project are doing is so important because that's how social and political change happens. Mm -hmm. And I do agree that the younger demographic is very powerful. Um, yeah. And we, people my age, have mm -hmm. had to, a lot to deal with, especially um, in terms of like college mandates. Sure. Um, and even though the CDC has come out with new guidelines uh, recently, relaxing testing for asymptomatic individuals and saying that guidelines for the unvaxxed versus the vaxxed should um, should be um, somewhat, you know, relaxed. It seems as though the vaccines, um, the vaccine mandates for colleges are not disappearing anytime soon. Yeah. So aside from a medical exemption, which mm -hmm. as it is in California, doctors already have such a hard time um, giving or religious, which a lot of teens just don't want to file. Yeah. How else, um, how else do you suggest that we fight the college mandate? In light of some parents not even wanting or having the resources to yeah. take that battle um, to the legal system. Yeah. So, really important question. Th this is the this is the question. College mm -hmm. vaccine mandates that originally got me involved mm -hmm. in this work. So I was at the University of California, Irvine, mm -hmm. where I'd spent my whole 15-year career. I was a professor in the School of Medicine, and I also that was half my time was in the Department of Psychiatry, which is my specialty, and the other half of my time was directing the medical ethics program there. So I was involved in our pandemic policies from the very beginning, um, but the university published a vaccine mandate policy without consulting any of its medical ethicists on that, which I thought was puzzling. <laughs> so I came out with a piece in the Wall Street Journal arguing that university vaccine mandates were unethical you know, for the following reasons, and I gave my reasons. Um, and then when the university went ahead and, and finalized its vaccine mandate, this is for all, all the UCs, the, the entire system across the state, um, I decided to challenge that vaccine mandate in federal court. Mm -hmm. uh, my case is still in federal court, um, and it's, we're waiting on a, an appellate judge in the Ninth Circuit to make a ruling on the case. So we're still kind of in limbo, and, and there's, there's a lot of waiting <laughs> when you are in the legal world, especially now, things are backlogged because of COVID. So I don't know when that case is going to be sorted out, but I think I 
do think that the new CDC guidelines are going to be helpful for challenging these university vaccine mandates. And, and the reason is when the CDC uh, was continuing to recommend that uh, people needed to get vaccinated and that you could treat vaccinated people differently than unvaccinated people, which is the, the whole premise that my, uh, my legal case is challenging, they base their entire argument on CDC recommendations, yeah. right? So we try, I try to get into the science. When the, my case was in the district court, we wanted to argue, look at the studies on natural immunity, infection-induced immunity. Look at the studies on declining vaccine efficacy after a couple of months. Let's look at the evidence. Well, the, the university didn't actually want to look at the evidence. They just wanted to hide behind the CDC recommendations. That was sort of their, their last defense, right? What we're doing is rational because we're just following the CDC recommendations. Well, that's gone now because the CDC is now recommending that you treat vaccinated and unvaccinated people the same. Um, for all the reasons that I was stating a year ago when I filed my case. So that the, the information has been available for over a year. I knew it back then. It's, it's all in my legal documents. The CDC took way too long to get there, but they're finally there now, which I guess we can be grateful. You know, a broken clock is, is still right uh, twice, a day. twice a day. So <laughs> they, they happen to be right on that point at the moment, whether they changed it for evidence-based reasons or political reasons, yeah. the upcoming election, who knows. Um, but the university no longer has that defense. So I think, again, a strong collective push from students and parents. Why are you uh, contradicting CDC recommendations? The university is going to be scared of students being aware of that right. because their legal defense looks very weak. And just to kind of be cynical for a moment, the university really cares about only two things, and they're not, they're generally not knowledge, uh, they're generally not uh, the, the welfare of students. Mm -hmm. They care about money, and they care about public perceptions. Right. They care, they don't want to be publicly embarrassed. Yeah. And losing a lawsuit is publicly embarrassing, right? Um, or losing some kind of legal challenge on the, on, on the part of students is publicly embarrassing. So um, when, they, when they felt that they had good legal ground to stand on, I think they were very confident about their mandates. I think their mandates are on extremely shaky ground now. And I think, um, again, with some collective action from student groups like yours, from concerned parents, um, maybe enlisting a lawyer to help you draft a letter to them, um, those are probably going to have a lot more effect now than they would have a year ago. When parents were and students were making noise a year ago, but um, I think the university felt that it could defend its position. I think the universities are not really going to have a lot of will this year to defend their position on vaccine mandates. I think those mandates uh, can collapse much easier now than they, than they would have last year. Yeah, I would agree. I think that hopefully they are going to collapse. I mean, there's, there's a few points. I think, first and foremost, uh, you need to push back, like you said. And you push back by reminding the school that e even now, by the CDC's own standards, uh, getting a vaccine has nothing to do with public health and safety. Because if vaccinated and unvaccinated are essentially being treated the same, then a vaccine, clearly by their own standards, does not in any mm -hmm. way amplify public health and safety. And so then it becomes a personal choice. Um, and the other thing that you could do, aside from pushing back, is say, fine, 
we're going to find a, a university or a college um, that doesn't require vaccines. Yeah. And there are universities and colleges out there, and I certainly hope that those institutions are flooded with students um, as a result of, of other institutions requiring vaccine mandates, and that would send, I think, a pretty resounding yeah. message to those other yeah. institutions. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to put in a plug for my two, I have two sons at the <laughs> University of Dallas, and I, I know because I know the president of the school and their general counsel, and they said that their applications are way up. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the reasons is people are hearing about the school. It's a terrific little liberal arts uh, Catholic school in Texas. Uh, but another reason is that they don't have, they've held the, held the ground and said, we're not going to do vaccine mandates. And there's a lot of students from other schools uh, mm -hmm. that are requiring mandates uh, that are hearing about the schools that don't and then moving over to those schools. So maybe you have a scholarship, maybe you have a living situation where it, leaving one school and going to another is not so easy. Well, stay in the fight and push back right. at the place where you're at. If you do have options, certainly let the no, let the school know that I'm prepared to exercise my options and take my tuition money elsewhere. Right. Right. Um, again, money and fear of public embarrassment. These mm -hmm. two things are motivating. I think you could also indicate to the schools that since they can't hide behind CDC recommendations anymore, uh, parents and students will hold the school liable and responsible for any right. vaccine-related injuries that come about as a result of their right. mandates and their efforts to coerce patients uh, or students right. and, and override their informed consent because they, they, they can't fall back on uh, CDC recommendations to try to defend themselves. Exactly. Yeah. And you, I'm sorry, um, we, we actually discussed this a little bit earlier today was this whole work. I'm curious to see what's going to happen um, overall with COVID-19 vaccines, because I, to dispel any rumors that still linger out there, there is not a single COVID-19 vaccine in the United States today that is FDA approved. These are all under an emergency use authorization. And we, as we discussed, I'll be curious to see um, what happens to the COVID-19 vaccines, because based on, on those standards, in theory, they should be pulled off of the market because there's no pandemic. That's I mean, right. Excuse me, there, there's no emergency. That's right. So there, the federal state of emergency has to end. Uh, the president <laughs> continues to renew it every three months and has indicated that he probably will again in October. So we need to push back against that and make it clear there's no longer a state of emergency. Uh, therefore, the, the whole ground for emergency use authorization uh, is gone. The Pfizer vaccine that received provisional approval called Comirnaty is actually not available in the right. United States. Mm -hmm. So even though this, this one has received provisional uh, approval mm -hmm. with ongoing clinical trials uh, still until 2024, I think, that one that's been approved is not available. So all the ones that are available are still under emergency use authorization. Um, and, you know, look, the... Um, the, the vaccine manufacturers have been protected from all li liability by federal law. Uh, the CDC is not liable because what they say is we don't we don't do mandates. We only make recommendations, right? Uh, which is true. Uh, all the mandates are based ha up until recently were based on CDC recommendations, but the CDC could basically disclaim responsibility by saying we don't make law, right? So as far as I can tell, the only institutions that are ultimately responsible are the ones that are still pushing mandates, right? And we need legal tests uh, because I do, not, I do not believe, my understanding of the law, that those institutions are protected or indemnified 
uh, from liability. So someone has to be responsible when harm is done by these policies, and it's certainly not going to be the federal government. Um, it's not going to be the vaccine manufacturers unless we get those laws changed, which we should. Um, they should be responsible for vaccine injuries the same way they're responsible for harms caused by their medications, right? They do much more rigorous clinical trials of their medications than they did for these vaccines. The reason is they're going to be liable right. if there are side effects that they didn't pick up in the studies or that they didn't know about or that they didn't warn people about. Um, so these big drug companies know how to do clinical trials, but you have to hold them responsible for the for the outcome of their product. Mm -hmm. You know, it would be like, the analogy I use is, you know, suppose Toyota or Ford was liable for, for safety issues in all of their cars except for their minivan model, right? right? Um, like, you know, if your car gets in an accident and blows up, the, the, the company is gonna have some lawsuits, right? Uh, if they didn't design it well. If people knew that all of your cars you're liable for, except for that one, nobody would buy the minivan. You'd, you'd be crazy, right? Because you, you, consumer protections rely on the threat of lawsuits. It's just how it works. And, but somehow we think it's okay to do that right. and to with vaccines. To your scenario, in, in that scenario, not only would, would you know, obviously the, that car wasn't covered, the minivan wasn't, um, wasn't they weren't liable, but in addition to that, that we were seeing minivans exploding all right. over the country. <laughs> <laughs> Not right. our problem, you know, right. exactly, exactly. Yeah. So um, anyway, but it, given that probably in the next year or two, we're not going to we're not going to see that law change. I, I, I hope that's the case. Uh, in the meantime, what can be done? Well, it seems to me that the institutions that are that are pushing out these mandates, even when all the scientific evidence and even when the the late to the party CDC is acknowledging now the evidence uh, these these colleges are still pushing these mandates. Uh, they need to be held liable for any harms that are done. So a lot of these mandates don't have grounding in real scientific data. Mm -hmm. And of course, the science is constantly evolving mm -hmm. along with the CDC guidelines. Mm -hmm. um, but how have colleges been able to justify um, asking the youngest um, healthiest, least vulnerable demographic to get to take a vaccine for a virus that is no longer in circulation since the virus, which is now circulating, right. is not the virus in the, the original variant. Correct. Gosh, I'm gonna. I'm just gonna say, I don't know how anyone justifies any of this. I don't know how <laughs> anyone, um, including the highest levels of the government, can sleep well at night um, from everything from the fact that there was readily available effective early treatment that could have saved millions of lives across this globe to um, justifying an all-out assault on the pediatric community that has come with tremendous ramifications from everything from health implications to a drop in IQ to uh, the psychological impacts. Uh, so I don't I actually I don't know no. how anyone justifies it. I'll, I'll let you answer. No, that. it's, it's totally unjustifiable. Have. And we need to call them out. Um, they have no grounds to stand on um, with this mass vaccination campaign aimed at children who are not at risk. Healthy children are not at risk of bad outcomes from COVID. They are at risk of bad outcomes from the vaccines. Where there is risk, there has to be choice. That's right. So clearly the vaccine has a pretty horrific safety profile. Mm -hmm. So um, how do you believe 
uh, fertility has been affected in young men and women, te- including teenagers, who have taken the shot? Yeah. Uh, the real problem with... Uh, it, so the, the real answer to that is we don't know. And the, the fact that the answer is we don't know gets at the nature of the problem. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, Pregnant women were excluded from the clinical trials. So the first time we gave the vaccine to pregnant women was uh, after the testing phase. So we tested the vaccine on pregnant women who didn't know that they were research subjects, who didn't know and were not informed. They were told, oh, it's going to be okay in pregnancy. We had no reason for saying that because we had never used it on pregnant women during the study phase, right? So that was that was just mendacious. That was that was absolutely fundamentally dishonest. Now that we've rolled this out in many young women of childbearing age and men of childbearing age, we're starting to see evidence emerge that there could be fertility problems. And I'll cite just a couple of pieces of evidence. Lots of menstrual irregularities. Um, people bleeding for weeks at a time, which obviously causes serious in, health in problems that, like anemia. Right, by definition of the fact that their 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 menstrual menstrual cycle excuse me menstrual cycles have been interrupted. That is the definition yeah. of interrupting fertility. That's, that's right. <laughs> the, the purpose of the menstrual cycle right. is uh, female fertility. Um, so exactly, mm-hmm. it, 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 that's that's why women have a have a cycle. It has to do with right. ovulation and preparing the, the uterus uh, for impregnation potentially every month. Uh, so that we know that that has been disrupted. We're seeing very bizarre reports of women who have been postmenopausal for years start to bleed again. That is never normal. Okay, there's, there's something seriously off when you are getting case reports of this. The NIH set aside millions of dollars in funding this year to study potential impacts on women's fertility. The NIH would not have set aside money to study this question if there wasn't some concern that they would find an issue there, right? So, so the answer is, I, I don't know, but with an asterisk. And the asterisk is, but we have reason to believe that, there, that we're, we're going to find problems there. Uh, there's been less um, case reports and less research on male fertility. Most of the attention has gone to women because right away we started hearing about these these um, you know bleeding irregularities and so forth. But there was there was one study uh, from a fertility clinic showing diminished sperm count in men who had taken the vaccine. So there's still a big question mark too about the vaccine's effect on male fertility. Um, We'll we'll have to wait and see what that all shows, but I think there's enough evidence now um, from case reports of miscarriages with the vaccine, case reports of menstrual irregularities, and again, at least one study of male fertility that are early signs in the research of problems. It's unconscionable that they would even encourage the pregnant population to get a vaccine like this during pregnancy. It's just unconscionable, so. Yeah, and I think another big question that a lot of people have is um, whether the vaccine is transmissible and if, or if it sheds. Mm-hmm. And um, can you be exposed to it through 
um, sexual contact, for example, and if so, what are the ethical implications of that? Should you have to reveal your your vaccine status? Oh, this is a great, deep question. Um, I'm going to let you answer that because I don't yeah. know, but I will say that in the state of California, apparently you can now have the active um, have active HIV. It's, it's, when I say active, it's always, you know, once you get it, of course you're active, but have, be infected with HIV and have sex with someone and not tell your sexual partner. So that's a really good question, Yeah. right? Again, the answer is we don't know. What we have is early suggestive evidence that comes mostly from what the vaccine does. The vaccine causes our own body to manufacture a part of the virus called the spike protein, the original spike protein from the Wuhan strain, as you pointed out earlier. That spike protein, according to the early characterizations of the vaccine, was supposed to stay in the deltoid muscle in the shoulder where it's injected, and it was supposed to clear the body very quickly, within hours to a day or two. We now know, uh, and the CDC recently acknowledged, that both of those early claims are untrue. So it, it, the mechanism that's supposed to anchor it to the injection site didn't work, and it, the spike protein goes throughout the body into all of the organs of the body. The highest concentration in animal studies from Japan was in the ovaries. We know the spike protein is, fancy word, thrombogenic. It causes blood clots and potentially cytotoxic. It can cause inflammation that can kill your cells and, and create different types of disease processes. Okay, So the spike protein is not good for your body. And we know that the spike protein also stays in your body for up to 60 days, perhaps even longer. But we have robust, very good studies showing it at least is in there, in your circulation for 60 days. And there's some evidence of, of shedding, meaning when I breathe, when I cough, when I sneeze through droplets, maybe aerosolized transmission, maybe other bodily secretions, sexual contact, I don't know, I haven't seen any studies. Um, you know, specifically looking at um, at sexual contact with uh, spike protein shedding, but it's theoretically, I think, possible. Uh, so, so what effect does it have on people to be around someone who's vaccinated? It might have some effect, right? If that spike protein is thrombogenic and cytotoxic, it's po theoretically possible. And again, I don't want anyone to say Cariotti claims that this is the case. We don't know yet. But it's possible, and there's some suggestive evidence, that being exposed to someone who's vaccinated might increase your exposure to a spike protein, which we know has problems associated with it. So it's, that's kind of what we can say at this stage about that question. Again, it's a question that we need more research on. It's a question that during informed consent, we also have to tell people what we don't know, right? And one of the things we don't know is how and whether this might affect other people that you live with, for example other people that you're in close, or a sexual partner, other people that you're in close proximity with? The answer to that question is, we don't know. And I think it's fair to say at this point, it's possible that it might affect them because I think there's there's enough suggestive evidence to say, yeah, you know, it's it's something that could, could happen and we need more research. So people also need to be informed of, of the unknowns, the unknowns regarding pregnancy and fertility, the unknowns regarding the effect of the people around me, all kinds of other unknowns that we could talk about. And nobody's being informed of those, those unknowns. 
Well, as we start to wind down the episode, I would love um, to turn the tables a little bit and ask ask you some questions. Um, it's not often that we get someone of your poise and and um, and be um, within the the younger population. And I think it's pretty clear that you have your finger on the pulse of your generation. And I would love to know really from a teen standpoint, the impact, this is going to be, it's probably a very broad question, but the impact um, that the last three years has had on you. And, and uh, I will say that we recently had a conversation with someone who is a recent high school graduate. She's 19 years old. And she said something that was really, really poignant. She said, you know, like my generation, which is very old, but my generation, we grew up and, and we had the normal rites of passage. You go to high school, you go to college. Um, we were uninhibited by what's happening right now in the world. Your generation, and this was, again, this was a really astute observation from her. She said, listen, I'm, gradu I'm graduating. Now I'm looking at college. I'm looking at what does the rest of my life look like? I don't know normal. This has been my life because it really started in theory with, for her, her sophomore year of high school. And now, so, so this is really all that she knows. So I'd just love to hear your perspective. I think, I think I've been most affected in three ways. I think academically, socially, and emotionally. Um, I would say that as someone who's always been interested in the field of medicine, I now feel that that career path has been a little bit more closed off mm -hmm. because even if I can manage to get past all of the university mandates, I still have clinical site mandates to get, get uh, overcome. And I'm not sure if that's um, something that my future holds anymore. Mm -hmm. And socially, obviously peer pressure. Mm -hmm. um, I've had, I have two stories. Um, one of them is really funny. Mm -hmm. I got asked out to a prom mm -hmm. at, at a different school and every, obviously um, proof of X required, right? So I didn't have that, so I just got a negative test. And the party was fine. The next day I get a call from somebody saying that the whole party tested positive for COVID the next day. And I, the only unvaccinated person there, was totally fine. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, and by the way, I feel like that's not an uncommon story though. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. what we're seeing now is for the, for the first couple of months after the initial doses and for the first few weeks after boosters, uh, you might get some protection against infection, but that wanes, that drops off very quickly. And then not only are you not protected as compared to unvaccinated people, you might even be more, there's a lot of evidence yes. now that you're more susceptible to infection with the vaccines than unvaccinated. So that's a little social experiment that is a piece of evidence that suggests uh, that the vaccines, um, the vaccines actually increase your likelihood of COVID infection. Ironically, yeah. Um, one other thing that happened to me was I went to like a childhood friend's birthday party, mm -hmm. um, and this was sort of during the height of COVID. Mm -hmm. um, everyone was, the whole country was very polarized, mm -hmm. and on it started on the invitation when it said unvaccinated guests negative um, mm -hmm. test required. So I was like, okay, this friend is worth the trouble. Mm -hmm. So I did it. Um, 
I went to her outdoor party mm-hmm. and um, at one point I was in a group of people mm-hmm. and the conversation um, led to the vaccine mm-hmm. and somebody who I was really close with mm-hmm. said that all unvaccinated people those who don't want it are selfish stupid and elitist with the knowledge that I was not vaccinated mm-hmm. um, so it, it's been hard to resist that pressure at every social interaction sure. to um, stand by my values mm-hmm. and not feel that pressure even though I'm being shamed and vilified everywhere sure. I go I feel like um, yeah so I think that's a very common experience mm-hmm. and emotionally I think that well the reason I I started Teens Against Mandates was after I was kicked out of a teen mm-hmm. um, teen suicide prevention and mental health hotline wow. at Cedar sinai And even though it was entirely remote, mm-hmm. apparently they think COVID is transmissible through the computer <laughs> because I was ki- still kicked out. Unbelievable. So it just goes to show I'm not a safety hazard. It's about... Yeah. It's, it's about, about control. control. Well, yeah. I can say... Uh, and I'm sure you will probably echo these sentiments as as a mother and as a citizen of the United States of America my heart is it hurts and it's heavy hearing what you just said Uh, you're clearly a wonderful wonderful human being and your parents have done an amazing job and um, you're you clearly exude strength in areas that you probably don't even recognize right now and I certainly hope that um, you continue to inspire your demographic because clearly you're a leader among your demographic. Um, and and it's, it's terrifying to me that you've been treated this way, but I know it's not an uncommon story. And so, um, do you Yeah, I did, well, that? first of all, I just wanna thank you for what yeah. you're doing. Um, I admire tremendous admiration for your courage. I mean, it takes a really strong person to stand up against that kind of pressure. Um, And when the losses and harms are real, you can't do something that you were passionate about that, you know, for a completely ludicrous, arbitrary, unjust reason, and you stand by your convictions. Um, I think the world needs a lot more of that. And you're you're setting an example for people, whether you know it or not. too bad more adults can't act like this. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm ready to appoint you as director of the CDC. You <laughs> clearly understand the issues related to vaccines much better than uh, Rochelle Walensky or any of the other <laughs> bureaucrats at, at, at the three-letter agencies. Um, so that's really impressive. And, and my own experience with these things as well, kind of professionally, is that you know when you stand by your convictions, certain doors might close for you but other doors and, and perhaps better doors and, and many more doors will open. So, um, so do the right thing and bide your time. Um, the cream eventually rises to the top and you know, you're, you're gonna find your place and you're gonna make a mark and you're gonna put a dent in this thing. So it's been, it's been an honor to meet you. Really, same. And I want to do an I want to do a podcast where I can ask all the questions. Right. Well, um, you can give all the answers. You're going to have to wait because I've had so much fun today (laughs) that I would like to have Teens Against the Mandates come back and continue to maybe do another co-hosting. We'll get some other guests in and have you and have you help us co-host. It's been fun. (laughs) Definitely, it's been very insightful and informative, and I really, really admire the both of you. 
your passion and dedication. You're both very principled people. And that integrity, I think, is what makes um, you both very outstanding people, and you especially. <laughs> uh, how, can, how can people follow what you're doing at Teens Against the So Violence? I have um, my third account after getting shadow banned and recreating it. Of course. It's <laughs> Teens Against Mandates 3. Excellent. Well, well, we'll link to that. So thank you. I encourage everyone to support and follow the work that, the, that Teens Against the Mandate is doing. And yeah, and send them money. Right. Right. Pony yeah. up. Come so on. Send them money. This is the future. <laughs> That's right. And really um, think about this conversation and think about your own children and think about, maybe if you don't have children, think about the children that you know that are in your life and in yeah. your network. Thank you so much, Teens Against the Mandate, Dr. Aaron Cariotti. Again, I think this has been another fun conversation, and hopefully people learn a lot from this. From all of us at The Unity Project, thank you for listening to today's podcast. We hope to continue producing content that amplifies voices, strategies, and resources. Please keep in mind that The Unity Project is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that relies on the contributions of our generous supporters to fuel the work we do in this movement. If you value our efforts, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution today by visiting our website at www.unityproject.com and clicking the Donate button. We very much appreciate your continued support and confidence, without which our work wouldn't be possible.